Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, darkness lovers. On today's show, I'm honored to be joined by Todd Burlett, a delegate for Dark Sky International, which has been the world's leading authority on light pollution since 1988. The president and board member of Starry Skies North, the Minnesota and Mid-Continent chapter of Dark Sky International. Starry Skies North is an all-volunteer 501c3 nonprofit corporation engaged in educational outreach and advocacy in support of their mission to protect the sky, the earth, and all life from light pollution. Todd initiated, initiated and leads the Mid-Continent Chapter Incubator, a Starry Skies North initiative to support dark sky advocates in the Mid-Continent region, which includes six states and two Canadian provinces. By providing them tools, training, online resources, and a support community to assist them in their outreach efforts and to help launch new dark sky chapters. Todd is a member of the American Astronomical Society and the Union of Concerned Scientists, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the Society for Light and Lighting. Todd is, re is a retired staff engineer and engineering manager and holds a BA in physics. During his 37-year career in the aerospace industry, Todd developed flight control, navigation, and radar systems for commercial, military, and space markets, and developed seven patents. He's a pretty cool guy. Todd is a lifelong amateur astronomer, astronomer and photographer, and when he's not advocating for darkness and dark skies, he enjoys landscape and nightscape photography, wilderness canoeing, scuba diving, globe trotting in pursuit of solar eclipses. Welcome to the show, Todd. It's so great to have you. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Sure. So you talked about there that you're helping. Um, a lot of this movement is volunteer-based. So we have a lot of people that are passionate about it, and they're volunteers. Tell me about how you support them. Right. So when when we started the Minneapolis chapter, so Starry Skies North uh, launched eight or nine years ago up in the city of, of Duluth, which uh, is just at the tip of, of Lake Superior. And then about two years ago, we launched our second chapter office, which was down here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is where I live. And as we were standing up the organization, I, I looked around at the surrounding states and, and provinces, and I said, well, who else is, is out there? Who, who are our brethren? Who can we look to for uh, how to bootstrap ourselves, uh, get some resources, get some ideas of, of how to operate, things to do, things not to do? And it was kind of empty. Uh, there, there was a chapter down in South Dakota, which, which was great. Uh, North Dakota had nothing. Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, and then Manitoba and Ontario, same thing. And I thought that can't be right. You know, mm. we're you know people all over the nation and all over the world care about the night sky, mm. but uh, with Kind of being a, a northern tier state, we're very focused on on tourism and, and the outdoors. Uh, not that other parts of, of the country aren't, but we get these beautiful auroras up here being mm. a little bit more northerly. And I thought there are so many people that are interested in, in the night sky. Why aren't there more chapters here? And what I really came away with was, I thought was, it's just because we tend to be lower population states. You think about the, the mm. Dakota, certainly uh, northern Minnesota, you know, there's not a lot of people in, in the northern two thirds of, of the state. Mm. So it, my conclusion was that we're just too spread out. We're, we're too far between. 
you know, it's really hard to get these critical masses. And so you get a lot of, you know, individual uh, dark sky advocates, dark sky delegates, mm. but they're all kind of voices in the wilderness and, and no one has this critical mass. So what we thought we would do is we would uh, provide a, a place, a sense of community and some resources so that these individuals would have a place that they could call home. They could call into a, a meeting. Uh, visit with some like-minded people, you know, talk about what's working, what's not working, you know, even just to have that that social connection of you're not in this alone and support them in that way. Uh, and then also directly, as I mentioned, with, with these resources, and then also provide uh, a platform for them within our website and within our social media channels. So if they want to talk about something that's going on, maybe in, in Fargo, they don't have to stand up all those social social media channels they don't have to create their own website we can do mm. that for them and help use our network plus their network to, to blast that out cover a larger audience draw more people to what it is that that they're doing uh, so that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years uh, we had great success uh, robin Portine and now leads the the michigan chapter over there i think starry skies north gets three to five percent of the credit for that robin's amazing <laughs> she she is just uh exploding over there there in michigan her and and, and her team and uh she really did all all the heavy lifting but I, I think we provided that that kernel that little bit of push that little bit of encouragement and and we continue to meet she she joins us uh monthly for our uh, mid-continent chapter incubator meetings and we talk about what's working what's not working uh, talk about how we're standing up, you know, a nonprofit corporation, how to go about doing that, you know, just those mm -hmm. ins and outs of, of how you run an operation. And that's really what we're trying to do is is lower the bar to entry for uh, whether it's, it's an advocate mm -hmm. or a delegate that, that wants to create a chapter or someone that just feels like they're a voice in the wilderness and, and there's no one there that really has, has their back or uh, is there to en encourage and support them. What I love about the issue um, is it's uh, it hasn't been captured by any political parties. You know, we we can all agree over this, and and you know, while I while I think that the the sort of genesis of the movement is from astronomers, and then to stargazers. I mean, your name is Starry Skies North, so you're talking about you know, not just telescopes. You're talking about just the the sense of awe you feel when you see a beautiful star fill the uh, beautiful sky filled with stars, or you have a chance to see the aurora borealis, and what a treat that is. Um, you know, I think it's starting to land that light pollution is pollution. And I think that that expands our reach into a lot of other areas and into a lot of other communities. Do you find that the environmentalist community is coming on board with Starry Skies North? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I really like the fact that it, you, you brought up the point that it, it, it's uh, nonpartisan. Uh, you know, a great example of, of that is uh, if folks are familiar with far northern Minnesota up by the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, which is an international dark sky preserve or sanctuary, rather, uh, some of the cities on the periphery of that have always kind of struggled. They, they, they tend to fall a little bit into to two camps, which is uh, there's a lot of, of people that, that live there and in the area that are, are there because they, they love that natural environment, that outdoors, mm. the trees, the, the lakes, uh, the clear blue skies, and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, 
but then of course the the reality is you know these people need need jobs they need steady incomes mm -hmm. so it, it tends to be a very tourism driven economy in the northern part of the state mm -hmm. and so uh, the, the folks that would like to see a, a, a more diverse economic system look to some of the natural resources up there. And there are some great natural resources. We've got uh, you know, copper and, and nickel in, in ground there. And so there are, are those that would like to see uh, a more diverse economy and, and are, are supporting of, of mining. So there, there's a little bit of uh i don't want to say say strife it's it sometimes risen to that level but there's a little bit of a tension between those that you know prioritize on the, the environment side and those that prioritize a little bit more on uh, economic stability and, and growth side and starry skies and astro tourism does i think a, a beautiful job of of spanning that that gap crossing that that boundary because you, you've got your, your cake and you can eat it too because mm. you know by its very nature it's it's an, an ecological activity it's, it's very low impact to go out turn off some lights and mm -hmm. and sit under the the night sky and enjoy it and and that's all it takes to be an astro tourist but it's also uh and this is really important for us in in the northern tier uh, and certainly up in, in Canada, you're very familiar with this. Uh, in a tourism-driven economy, spring and fall are kind of lean times. You've mm. got in the summer, of course, you've got all of the families that are up there and they're enjoying the camping and, and the fishing and, and all that the Northwoods have to offer. Mm. And in the winter, you've got the skiers, you've got the, the snowmobilers, you've got the sled doggers. That spring and fall is, is kind of lean times in mm. terms of filling those hotel rooms, uh, filling up the, those restaurant seats. And that just by coincidence happens to be the mm. best time of year to be doing astrotourism because the temperatures are mild, the skies get dark at an early decent hour so you can get the kids out there. Mm. Let them see, you know, the night sky, see the Milky Way, and you don't have to keep them up until midnight to do it. And of course, mm -hmm. the, the bugs are gone. So mm. it, it's really this this win-win situation where the environmentalists can feel good about uh, protecting the natural environment and even improving it by turning off some of those lights. Uh, the, the folks that are worried about local economies can feel good because now we've leveled out that up and down cycle of uh, feast and famine between the prime seasons and, and the shoulder seasons. So I, I think it, it very, very much is a, a non-political situation. And, and then you mentioned, of course, uh, that this idea of, of light pollution really starting to be seen as, as pollution uh, without you know, the, the qualifier in front of it. And certainly mm -hmm. we're not seeing that in, yeah. it's not a metaphor, it's, it's another form of pollution. You know, mm -hmm. I, Europe is, is really embracing that we're seeing that in uh, Poland uh, we're seeing that in Spain Mexico was on board with that concept and certainly New Zealand is perhaps leading the way in terms of trying to become the world's first dark sky nation mm. and you know I always uh, think about when, when I'm explaining this to people you know this idea of pollution and and light pollution being this this other form of pollution I asked them to, to think about, well, what if what if we delete the word light and replace it with the word noise? Mm -hmm. If your if your neighbor was blasting their stereo at full volume, 
at three in the morning, you would feel perfectly entitled to go over, knock on their door, have a nice conversation with them about, you know, your right to have a good night's sleep. And, you know, if they wouldn't, then there's probably some noise ordinance in your community that, that you could fall back on to, uh, you know, force them into compliance so that mm. you can enjoy your outdoor environment just as much as, as they can. Mm. But and, and certainly you could, by extension, say the same thing about, uh, you know, trash. If your neighbor's throwing trash over the fence or or running their, their sewer system into your yard, of course, <laughs> that would be an outrage. Sure. And you'd have those, those conversations. But yet when, when we talk about light pollution, uh, people feel very uncomfortable talking about that. And even those that try to have those conversations and i've i've seen some of the, the threads that take place on some of the social media uh that's where the trolls start to come out if, if you mm. raise you know the point that you have a light to you know natural darkness at at night you know people will, will jump on you in a horrendous manner so there, there's still a lot of, of sense within broader communities that light pollution isn't real pollution and mm. that's part of our, our job, I think, as advocates for the dark sky is that educational piece. How do we help everyone in the community understand that, yes, light pollution is a form of pollution and everyone has as much right to a natural night sky as they do to a, a dark sky or, or a dark neighborhood, a quiet neighborhood that doesn't have that stereo blasting away. So the, you brought up the, the sound um, and light pollution and sound pollution are almost are almost always found together. Um, they they're very. I had another fellow on. Um, can't uh, his name will come to me in a second. But he talked a lot about tra well, actually several guests talking about tranquility as a combination of sound and light pollution together and trying to eliminate and establish tranquility. Which is, I'm very as we talked in our conversation a couple of weeks ago. Um, the the way that we speak about this I think is very important. Right. So the word rights, the word freedom, the word liberty, all these things get thrown around at times. Um, I have a right to safety, which means light pollution. Right. Or I have, a, you know, these these it, it's not actually about that. It's not about not mining for copper. It's not about, you know, ec economic development. It's about applying the technologies we have now so that everybody wins. It's not about, it's not, there's no either or, and you often hear in the lighting circles, no, we need to establish a balance between um, light pollution and safety. And there is no balance. If we say that light pollution is pollution, we have a moral obligation to mitigate it. We can't eliminate it because we, we, humans, everything pollutes. I mean, all animals, uh, all of us, we're, we're changing the environment, but we have an obligation to mitigate it. And I don't, I, I don't like these either or Manichaean views of things, you know, light is safety. And I think I've, I've tracked, I've been thinking about this and I meditate about this a lot. When humans first invented electro, electric light, it was beautiful. Like they were so relieved that they were able to have light in during the darkness in a way it was almost religious. You know, the Christ is the light of the world, Todd. You know, the, these these are ideas that archetypes are bound up in us. But I think we've gotten to the point where um, most people would see, you know, uh, light pollution in people's homes or from a factory as somewhat ostentatious and conspicuous now. And I think we need to get to the point where it becomes grotesque. 
And we're on our way there. And if you actually arrive, and if you're listening to this where Todd and I are, and you're driving around at night now, or you're looking and you're in a place, the light pollution is grotesque, actually. It's like this, if you're at a, a quiet lake in northern Minnesota or in Ontario or something like that, and you're lying in a canoe, and then off to one side, there's this hazy glow of light. It is grotesque, Todd, and we can, we can mitigate it massively, and we should. And, and the lighting industry should be responsible for that. And so this idea that, you know, you can't have your church or your temple lit up. Yeah, you can light your temple up a midnight mass, maybe, or your church up a midnight mass. You know what I'm saying? But then the rest of the time, it should be turned off. There can be special occasions. Everybody can win here, Todd. And that's why I don't like this, the way you're talking about how people talk about their rights. This has nothing to do with individual rights. Absolutely not appropriate in the conversation. You know, you don't have a right to... To, to light pollute, actually. Just like you don't have a right to play your stereo in the middle of the night. And you don't have a right to dump your sewage on your neighbor's property. And we all have to cooperate and get along. And so as we establish light pollution as one of those things that people should not do or should not engage in and companies should not engage in, it becomes grotesque. Once it becomes grotesque, you'll see massive acceleration on this, Todd. And I think that's what you're... I mean, I hate to use those kind of terms, but if you look across from Michigan across the, I can't remember what the name of that lake is, between Niagara Falls and, and that, you can see the purple haze of these um, unshielded uh, greenhouses. It looks like a, 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 a squadron of aliens is landing in southern Ontario. It's grotesque. It really is grotesque. And we need to fix that. That doesn't mean we don't want greenhouses, right? You understand what I mean? Like this is Absolutely. this either or situation that does not belong in this. It's not a left wing or right wing issue. It's not a conservative or liberal issue. It's not a Democrat or Republican issue. It's, it's, it's grotesque for everyone of all backgrounds, for all of us. So we need to eliminate it. <laughs> Light pollution, you know, and, and you're aware of this. Other dark sky advocates are aware of this. Certainly I am. Once, once you become attuned to light pollution, and and recognizing it you realize that it's pervasive it's it's mm -hmm. everywhere mm -hmm. you know it, as you drive around i do this i'm sure you do this i'm, I'm looking at oh that light's unshielded that white's that that one's too blue you know that that one why does it even exist why is it even there <laughs> what purpose is it is it serving and so that's where i often start with you know, public outreach is, is just raising their awareness of, hey, you know, that, that light, that neighbor's light that shines into your eye that we call glare, that doesn't have to be there. You know, no. I, you know, I, I think often about, we call them, them carriage lights. So a lot of people have them sure. on, on the front of their, their garage. Sure. Guilty as charged. I had carriage lights in my house for, for many years. You know, this, this was years ago now because they, they look, old timey and you know they they kind of uh e evoked kind of a, a kinder genteel time it's an aesthetic it's an aesthetic yeah they, they looked elegant sure. but you know now looking back on that and, and thinking more objectively about that light and how it's being used and how it used to be used you think about those, those carriage lights where did they go they were on carriages Mm -hmm. And where where did the people that were on those carriages sit? They were sitting above those lights. And of course, those lights had a shield on them so that light wasn't shining into their mm -hmm. eyes. So if you're sitting up above these lights with the light shining out and that's the only light around, 
that's a good way to, to light the environment, these, these lights that are shining straight out. Mm. Now, of course, we're not sitting up above those lights. We're looking at them straight on. Mm. And yet we haven't thought, you know, intentionally about, gee, now we're looking into these lights mm -hmm. instead of looking down on them. Maybe we should be rethinking how we design these, these things. And, and so I think bringing that intentionality, whether it's to the light design or how we're putting those lights on our house, which lights we're putting on our house, bringing that intentionality of thinking about what am I really trying to accomplish here rather than just, oh, these look really cool. I, I like this aesthetic and, and thinking about how we're going to use that, that light. You know, I always tell people, you know, light is light is a tool and light at night has a real function, has a real purpose and, and value in terms of whether it's it's the headlights on our car, you know, providing some some light to illuminate a pedestrian that, that's crossing uh, a, a crosswalk. Uh, safety and security, obviously a very complex issue, but we can talk about you know ways that light can help or, or hinder uh, safety and security and so on. So so light as a tool has a place in the nighttime environment, but we need to think about it as a tool and how to use the, the right tool for the job at, at hand. And then to put that tool away when you're done with it. You know, I, I tell people, you know, I have a sledgehammer. I love my sledgehammer. And when I need to break down a wall, I'm reaching for the sledgehammer. Sure. But when I'm hanging a picture on the wall, the sledgehammer is probably not the right tool to use. And light is, is, is the same way. We should be thinking more intentionally about what kind of light we're putting on the house or in the street light, and then how, how we're shielding it, how we're controlling it with, with a dimmer or a timer so that we're getting the maximum benefit from that light. It's doing the job we want it to do, uh, but minimum impact in terms of energy use and in terms of impact to the human health and wellness, to the ecosystem. So it's it's coming back to this, this intentionality of, of mm. how we use light as, as a tool. And then putting it away when we're done, turning it off, turning it down, putting it on a timer so that we're not lighting uh, up the, the environment mindlessly all night long. Uh, you know, one of the questions I, I get often asked is, well, what about Christmas lights? You know, we, we were talking a moment ago about lighting up a church or a synagogue. Mm. And, and so people very rightfully ask about you know, the Christmas lights, what am I supposed to do about that? Am I supposed to, you know, just go home, pull the Christmas lights off my house? And what I tell them is, you know, no, ab absolutely. Those, those, those are, those create a cultural connection for us sure. back to uh, our religious experience and, and how we want to celebrate that. They can provide a little bit of cheer for what's otherwise a, you know, a very dark time of, of year. So absolutely, if if Christmas lights are a family tradition for you, go ahead and, and have those on the house, but then put them on a timer. When you go to bed, turn those lights off, unplug them, uh, dim them maybe, uh, because at 3 a.m., guess what? Your neighbors yeah. aren't noticing the lights. You're not noticing the lights. It's exactly Just, right. Know, yeah, right. have, have yeah. create that win-win that situation where you yes. get the light. And then the, the ecosystem gets the darkness. If there's someone there to enjoy the Christmas lights, certainly have them on. But if there's nobody there to enjoy the Christmas lights, it's only laziness and being too rich that allows us to behave that way. You said that electric light at night has a purpose, but so does darkness. 
And I think Absolutely. we need to acknowledge that darkness as well has a purpose and that it's fundamental to the circadian rhythms of the universe and the world. And, this, you know, we're offending the, the earth revolves around the sun and, and it, it goes from these times of darkness to light. This is fundamental to the, the process of, of how life is generated on this planet. And we're offending that. And so we have to go from this beautiful Christmas lights to on at three in the morning is a bit ostentatious to conspicuous to grotesque. And so one of the suggestions I give to people, I like to avoid conflict when I can. I don't mind conflict. I don't mind having, you know, an argument with somebody if it's if it matters and it's appropriate. But if we can avoid conflict, we should avoid conflict. Right? And so one of the suggestions I've given, and a lot of people look at me really, really squirrely, like that's weird or whatever. If your neighbor has ridiculously grotesque outdoor lighting at night, write them an extremely polite anonymous letter and mail it to them. And just saying, dear neighbor, I love our community. I'm so happy that we're neighbors and da 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 da, da. But I don't know if you notice that your lights are very offensive to your neighbors. And it would we would really appreciate, we, we would really appreciate you dimming them and turning them off, particularly the coach lights that you have at the end of your driveway that shine across the neighborhood. Um, you know, we would appreciate if you turned those off after 10 o'clock. You wouldn't believe, Todd, how effective that is. It's in incredibly effective because if you go engage with that person, with you and them, and try to talk to them about light pollution or try to talk to them, about, you become the target of their en enmity. The acrimony is between them and you, and now you've made an enemy. We don't want enemies. Let them. Let it be a mystery. That people are like are 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 not liking you. Very 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 powerful. It acts the same as the shame mechanism, right? So, and then guess what? I th th I've done this so many times. The only time it doesn't work is with companies. It doesn't work well with companies, but it certainly works well with your residential neighbors. It will, I can, if you're listening to this, folks, I can guarantee you that if you send an anonymous letter to your neighbor who's light polluting or creating light trespass for the other neighbors, they will not know who sent it, and they will certainly turn their lights off, especially if they get the second letter. <laughs> they will do it. And because people, people are, uh, when they have that kind of mystery, they, they, they're like, oh, man, people are watching me. They're looking at my house. I better get in line. I better, I better realize this. And what a blessing for them not to have conflict. What a polite way to do that rather than getting in someone's face and trying to convince them that light pollution is pollution. Instead, make them feel it a little bit. So I suggest that. Um, so darkness has a purpose. I think in the lighting industry, so you're from, you're an engineer, you're, you're you know, building aircraft or <laughs> flight control navigation systems. I sell light bulbs. And I find that, you know, the, that, uh, Dark Skies International or Dark Sky International and other organizations um, like the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, which the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors has just launched. Um, we need to do a much better job at instructing, teaching, and certifying the lighting industry so that when people go to their local electrical contractor or when they go to um, uh, the, the, the local lighting distributor light bulb shop, there's someone there that has a certification for darkness. Um, and I, this is, I, I think, absolutely fundamental. You, you know, you walk into, uh, and not only that, though, but if there's, a, if there's a spat down at the local town council, you can bring in someone that has a certification and say, yeah, this guy's a lighting professional. And actually, he says that you can accomplish the same light levels 
without creating with by reducing the lighting light pollution by 85%. And actually there's a control system that goes with it as well that the city can deploy that you know now we can warm and dim our lights when on our unused streets at 3 in the morning. And so I think we need to do a better job there Todd. Have you have it has it come up on any of your committees or with Starry Scars North uh, working with the lighting industry? We haven't it's working with the lighting industry is is on our list of aspirations it's part of our strategic goals is is to reach those people that are excuse me that that are just the decision makers or at least that are influencing those decisions so whether mm. that's you know a, a city staff or someone on public works the the city engineer or the the lighting designers the architects those are people that, that we love to talk with because having one conversation with one person and getting them to understand uh, that their decisions, their their recommendations to their customers matter and can make a real difference is really fundamental to how we, we drive change. You know, a, a great example is uh, there, there's a facility up, up in Duluth that uh, is, is just changing out some of its parking lot lights. And I got a, a call from a concerned neighbor up there that said, these are, are really bad. And, can, you know, can you do something? So I went up there and, and I always like to, to start from a, a position of, of knowledge. I, I want to know what the situation is. Mm. So I went up and I was able to, you know, zoom in on these light fixtures and I looked at them. And, and these lights are in the, the perimeter of, of a parking lot. Mm -hmm. But the light pattern that was selected was uh what was called a, a type b or a type five so um it, it's a circular pattern with as much light going behind the light as mm. there is light coming forward mm -hmm. when of course that's not what anyone intended to do no. it, it's just that they probably never gave gave it much thought of you know hey here, here's a bright light that's got the the number of lumens that i need in order to you know get so much brightness on my parking lot or you know whatever standards i'm trying to meet and they really didn't look past that number to to think about hey how is how is this light being viewed from the neighbors behind it or or off to the sides uh, let alone things like like the color temperature and you know whether or not there's sufficient shielding and i'm i'm certain that that's not because of, of any kind of, of callousness or, no. or malin intent from these people. No. It's it's just that they weren't aware of it. They didn't stop to, to think about it, and and they didn't stop to think about it because that's never a question that they've been asked. It's never been a, a consideration uh, from their their customers. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. We need to do as dark sky advocates uh, a much better job of reaching out into those professional organizations, into those mm -hmm. educational processes to, to make sure that those people that are coming into those professional organizations or those that are already in there become aware of light pollution as an issue. But then more importantly, become aware that there are these great win-win solutions. Yeah, we can have that light on the perimeter of the parking lot, but let's make sure that pattern is, is going where we actually meant for it to go, where it's actually going to, to meet the, the state standards. And it's going to be a, a safe and healthy life light. And gee, maybe at, at 3 a.m. we're going to dim that down or we're going to put that yeah. on the timer or what have you. So, so bringing all of that uh, information, that education, that, that awareness to uh, the lighting professionals, whether it's, it's the guy 
pulling the light out of out of a catalog or uh, you know a lighting designer that is, is designing those systems and make sure that he has the information he needs in order to design a lighting system uh, that's going to be a win-win solution for everybody for the neighbors as, as well but as Todd you know when most people pick light fixtures okay and I'm telling you right now this is from a hundred percent experience mm-hmm. <laughs> They take the light for granted. They pick the style, the how the fixture looks, right? Not the light that comes out of it, okay? So when people are picking light fixtures, you know, whether that's a wall pack on the back of a factory, they want to see something they know what, oh, that's a wall pack, right? Great. Well, no, here's a beautiful cutoff. No, 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 no. It's got to be the same as it was before. I like these beautiful fixtures like this, and it has this round thing on it. It's dark, it's dark sky certified. Um, if it's put at 3000 Kelvin, you see, I see these every day on websites. Okay. Nobody yep. can very rarely now on, on the, the bigger, the job, the more likely it is to be specified, the more likely it is to have a lighting designer. But I'm going to tell you that not all lighting designers are darkness restoration and night preservation activists, uh, advocates. Okay. So, um, their intent is to create light pollution. Okay. So, but so most people are picking light fixtures based on how the light fixture looks not the light that comes out of it. Okay, that's how the selection process is made. The second thing, the second problem is that what you're trying to address and what you're saying is that you're allowed to light your parking lot up. Nobody's saying don't light your parking lot up, okay? What you're saying is uh, we have technology that everyone can win here. You you can check all these boxes. Now, we're not going to completely ever eliminate light pollution, but we can reduce it substantially, substantially reduce it. And then the final um, um, point uh, of all of this is that the lighting industry needs to get it through its thick skull. That darkness restoration, night preservation, starry skies, dark skies, whatever the heck you want to call this, okay, is good for business. It means more light fixtures. It means all the existing outdoor lighting in North America, probably Europe too, uh, you know, is it back in play again. You can convince people to change those things if we learn these principles and we get this through our heads. We have the technology. There's no research and development required. This is about deployment of existing technology. And sure, we're going to get better and better and better and better at it. Yes, but we, there's no excuse not to do this because it sells more light fixtures and the fixtures are going to cost more. And so you're going to make more money and you're going to deliver more energy savings to your clients and you're not going to offend anybody. And the, if the lighting industry would just get this through their heads that becoming the lighting and darkness industry, not just the lighting industry, preserving darkness, restoring darkness is such a wonderful, amazing financial opportunity for this industry. We need to embrace it, Todd. We need to, as an industry, embrace it. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about win-win solutions. Yes. And... You know, we um, we've got in in Minneapolis, the the city of Minneapolis, uh, as in in any city, there are you know more affluent neighborhoods with that have sure. lower crime, and there are are neighborhoods with uh, higher BIPOC communities, uh, people lower on the social economic index, you know that that are struggling to get by a little bit, and those areas tend to have you know higher crime rates, and and so we've there was an, an initiative that was uh, announced uh, a couple of years ago by someone that, that was running for office called Get Lit Minneapolis. 
and and the the platform was really well intentioned. The idea mm-hmm. was uh, the individual uh, was was concerned about all all of the crime in mm-hmm. in their ward, and the idea was if we add enough light, we're going to drive down crime, and that's going to be better for my constituents, the people that, that live here, that call this home, that the people that that work here, and so. Uh, I, I've engaged with with them to talk about the difference between more light and and better light, and so we've actually started a, an initiative for educational outreach that we call Better Light Minneapolis. And the idea isn't that no, we we want all of you in in your ward to go home and sit in the dark and, and live in fear and, and shut your doors. The idea is no, we we want to uh, provide you the light that is going to help you feel safe at home and we can have whole hours worth of conversations about the difference between <laughs> feeling safe and being safe and what lighting sure. can and can't do for you but we're not going to go there but this idea of we might we can yeah we, we might <laughs> but this idea that you know the 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 turnkey the the go-to solution for uh, the people that, that want to put the, these lights in um, and, and again, not not because they're, they're evil people, but they're they're no. just un, unaware uh, is, you know, we're going to put in a bunch of 5000 Kelvin lights on high poles and we're going to light up this whole area. And there's there's going to be uh, no darkness on, on the main thoroughfares. And and you can sit down and, and you can say, all right, well, let's let's talk about the light that you actually want. What are you trying to achieve? And what is a lighting solution that provides a win-win solution? Yeah, but you're talking you? with uh, when you're talking to people like that. Todd, I'm going to interrupt you a little bit here because I encounter this yeah. every day in my practice, right? Sure. You're starting off. They're starting off with an axiomatic presupposition that more light equals more safety. Yes. Right. That's their and and that's a straw man argument. Okay. So you they refuse to they refuse to accept that their argument requires proof. Your Disagreement with them requires the research studies and everything else. And so when you have, and, and these people are well-intentioned, but you know, it, 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 when people talk, uh, people talk about lighting, lighting is a, a, a understudied mystery to us. Most people don't even know what light is. Darkness is light, is a type of light, okay? And so we have a lot of learning as a species to become more intelligent about lighting. And so the idea, though, that the straw man always wins, that's the problem. The straw man wins in court. The straw man wins in the insurance disputes. The straw man always wins. If there's an accident in a tunnel and it was caused by glare because somebody left a really highly lit tunnel and exited onto a darker area and their eyes didn't adjust fast enough and there was an accident, it's because there's not enough light. The answer is always more light pollution. Um, when it comes to these areas. And so we need to do a better job as a species to become more intelligent. We need to become more intelligent. That's the that's at the heart of this. And then we can't allow straw men to push us around, straw men arguments like that. Um, I would say my response to her would be like, so if you lit your streets up like a prison yard, would people behave like prisoners? I mean, you know, it, it, does a prison yard keep people safe? I think it keeps people in prison. I mean, I think that's what, I would say, you know, is like, yes, I mean, there are ways that you can intimidate people with lighting, but is that what you're trying to do? It's a form of intimidation, right? When you light things up very brightly at night and point them in certain directions and all that, you know, it, it's, a, it's an act of intimidation. That's what it's used for. It's meant to 
show that people are being observed and, 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 and that. So I'm not so sure that those presuppositions are correct. Now, there's evidence to say that more light does equal more safety. There's also evidence to say that it changes the type of crime that happens. It doesn't lower crime, it just changes it. So we need to become more intelligent. We need to do experiments. We need to um, have municipalities start to study the effect of street lights at night in depth, in serious depth, using control systems, automated shielding, uh, warm, uh, dimming and tuning and different mechanisms, and then allowing neighbors to have control over their street lights. That's another avenue to get away from the safety. Well, we're actually going to dim them by 90%, Todd. But if you really want to turn them on, you can download the app and you can turn them on for 15 minutes, but then they're going to go back down after 15 minutes. So you'll have to return them on again. Right? Right. And I would, I yeah. just fascinated on what would happen with that if somebody studied that. I, I always love the, the study that came out of uh, Chicago. They, the, the city of Chicago has a great database of 300,000 streetlight out reports. And researchers were able to go in, look at the dates that that uh, street light out was reported and when that light was repaired, and then uh, cross-reference that with crime reports. Mm -hmm. And what they found was underneath where that light went out in the immediate vicinity of where it's darker, crime went down. Hmm. <laughs> crime went up in the donut around there. And what the, the researchers hypothesize is crime went down because the criminals weren't being provided for free the light that they needed in order to commit their crime. So they wanting things to be easy and simple, hacked up and moved to where there was still enough light for them to carry out, out their, their crime. So it's just one example of it's not that, you know, building off of what you were saying. It, it's not a simple relationship of bright equals safe and dark equals danger. It's a very complicated relationship. And we do need more studies such as, as that one that, that came out of uh, Chicago. We but know yeah, that bright absolutely. lights eliminate vagrancy, right? So mm -hmm. um, you know, vagrants won't congregate in brightly lit areas. That's true. They go, they'll go to places that are dark so they can sleep. Oh, what is that telling you? Huh. Like, what is that? When people say that, well, no, 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 because if we turned, if we, if we, if we dimmed the lights or we lowered the light level or we had shielded lighting or whatever, more people would sleep on the streets. Well, I don't think people sleeping on the streets is a lighting problem, okay? I think that's a different societal problem. Um, but certainly, if you had control over your lights, you could then turn them up for a period of time if you wanted to. Like, if you actually wanted to study it and see what would happen, you could try that. But, um, you know, the idea that, that, um, that artificial lighting or electric lighting at night gets rid of homelessness is not a, a solution to the problem. You're just moving people around. And second of all, that's not really a, that's not how we want to solve that problem. I, I don't think, you know, I think we, we have other solutions to that problem uh, instead of shining um, lights on them. Um, and then, you know, what type of crime is actually being committed? You know, um, you know, I, I, I was a study that had come up. I can't remember. I think it was in Britain where they found that, you know, lower street lighting reduced break-in entries into vehicles, right? So because people couldn't see what was in the car, and so it wasn't obvious to them that they should, like, you know, most crime like that is not um, a heist that's been planned for months, okay? You probably have someone walking down the street who's drunk, sees a laptop or a MacBook sitting on the front seat of a car, and smashes the window and takes the laptop. 
right? And, I, I, you know, if they couldn't see that the laptop was there, which car are they going to choose? It's not like they've scoped the person out for weeks and they're waiting for them to leave their laptop in the car. You know, this is not that kind of crime. You're talking about opportunistic crime, usually done by people that are very desperate, okay? So the crime issue is not a light issue. So the association, we're going to reduce crime by lighting up our neighborhoods like prisons, prison yards. That's not a solution to crime. That, like, that's not a sociological solution to crime. You need another strategy, bud. You know, you can light this up like crazy. You're not going to reduce the desperation of the person that's willing to smash someone's car window to grab a $200 laptop that they're not even sure they can get into. You know, like the, when you start to really poke at these you know, light equals safety types or light reduces crime types. It's like, or light reduces homelessness. It's like, what are you trying to do here? It's like you're trying to get rid of people or something, or you're trying to intimidate them with light. I'm not comfortable with that as a solution, Todd. And and I completely agree. You know, you, you think of, you know, I, I call it weaponizing. Other people have called it weaponizing light. And you can look at what New York City did with its omnipresence program in terms of, of putting these light towers and just blasting blue-white light out in, into the, the projects in an effort to reduce crime. And the, there's a fairly flawed uh, study that looked at that that said, yep, we, we actually did it. But if, if you dig into that and study a little bit more, you discover that it was funded by the same people that wanted to, to prove their, their point. And they, they didn't consider the, the human impact, the health and wellness impact of what actually happened is that the people living in the projects were actually driven off of the streets, reducing their, their quality of life. They were driven into their homes where they had to go out and spend their limited financial resources to buy not one, but two layers of blackout curtains so that they could sleep at night. And so, you know, the, this idea of there, we, we fixed the problem by adding enough light um, is, is really a, a false economy. And, you know, we've, we've seen that here in, in Minneapolis and, and the neighboring city, St. Paul, where people are living on these streets where they put in these 5,000 Kelvin, very bright lights on, on tall poles. And the people are, are reporting back that what's happened is vibrant neighborhoods have, have really turned into ghost towns because the, these lights are uh, so prison-like, as, as you mentioned, that it, it's driven people off of their, their front steps and back into their homes. They've, they've closed their curtains. And now, rather than having a vibrant community with a high quality of life where neighbors mm. get to meet neighbors, everyone is hiding inside, away, hiding away from that, that light with their shades drawn. And who's left to run the streets? It's, it's the people that we probably didn't want there in the first place. So you really have to, to wonder whether that was a net positive or, or not. So it, it gets back to this intentionality of, gee, if, if we had you know the right number of lumens, we had it shielded so it's not shining into you know people's first and second story bedroom windows. We've got those warmer color temperatures that are, are better for, for health and, and wellness. And they're, they're dimmed or, or they're on timers so that, uh, you know, one of the things I, I always like to tell people uh, that are worried about personal safety is motion detectors are a great win-win solution. You know, it, that, that it, thing it is- definitely works better. That's for sure. Like it may, definitely yeah. scares somebody that's coming if a light comes on for right away, for sure. That's proof, like that, that doesn't even need to be studied. 
if you have an aux sensor and someone's walking up your door and the light comes on, they're immediately going to be startled. That's for sure. But let me, let, me, let me take it like a level below that, right? So where does the thought process of this light safety coercion come from? So what you're talking about is there, it, it, it's a policing issue. So they've turned safety into a policing issue, which is it's safety and crime are not policing issues. Policing is with the incidence of crime. It's not the strategy to eliminate crime or reduce crime. Those are two different things. Policing and crime reduction, policing is a part of crime reduction, just like advertising is part of a marketing strategy. But it, there's five fingers, you know, on the marketing, promotion, public relations, publicity, uh, sales, and advertising, right? Crime reduction has a lot of different strategies, okay? But it comes from this mindset that if we just put everyone in a prison of the panopticon, if everyone was just felt like they were being supervised all the time, then they wouldn't dare commit any crime because we're watching you. Come on! Who, why are we thinking like this in such a coercive manner? It's so rotten. It's a, a rotten mindset. And I don't like it at all. This idea that, yes, we have to make everyone feel like they're being watched all the time and that will reduce crime because you're being watched. Like, we can't, we can't buy into this long term. It's really, really sad, actually, especially at a place like Minnesota or these smaller communities up north. And it's just, we can't treat one another like that. Um, you know, we're going to get rid of homelessness by shining lights on them. Come on. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to, uh, you know, municipalities and, and other organizations looking for quick, simple, cheap solutions. I can put up a light, turn that light on, problem solved. I, I've, I've addressed crime in, in my community, in, in my, my city. And, you know, you're, you're spot on that it's not that simple. It's a societal issue. You know, preventing crime is, is multifaceted and, you know, can often take years, will take years. You know, we've been trying to prevent crime since the, the, the dawn of time and, <laughs> and we're still working at it. And this notion that we can light our way out of crime, I tell people if, if that was the case, then we wouldn't need police during the daytime, right? Because there would mm -hmm. be no crime when the sun is out. Well, obviously that that's facetious, that's, that's not true. So right there, you know, it, it, it's, intuitively and immediately obvious that having enough light, having more light, uh, is is not going to uh, prevent crime. Uh, and it's and gonna it might move crime. It might move crime. It might change the types of crimes that are committed. But this is not a solution to this problem. It's not even moral to consider it as a solution. I find it offensive that whether the person, whether they're people of color or, or whatever people they are, um, you know, we ha we should not have this mindset of coercion. That's not the right way. And using light as a coercive tool to create what? What are you trying to create? A prison yard? That's what you're creating, right? And what does that do to the people in the prison yard? Does it make them feel like prisoners? I don't know. But a final point on this, and you know, not to bring up old wounds. Um, but we saw a lot of rioting recently in the United States at night. And I found it curious. So if you ask a police officer, say, you want more light? They'll always say more light. Yes. Give us 5,000 Kelvin so we can see everything and all the time. Okay. The problem with that is it actually goes against the fundamental principle of prison lighting. Okay. And the fundamental principle of prison lighting 
is this. Police officer walks up to your car at night. Okay, You're sitting in the front seat. He walks up to you. She walks up to you. They shine a flashlight at you. What is the dynamic? I can see you, but you can't see me. Right? You're now blinded by light. Right? And so they can see exactly. if you're, you're, you're armed or whatever. And so there's immediately a hierarchy created because you don't know who I am. You don't know if I'm holding a gun out. You don't know what I'm doing. So it, it creates, it's deer in the headlights, right? Someone's sitting in their car. They can't see the cop. The cop says, roll down your window. They're shining a light right in your eye, <laughs> sniffing for alcohol, whatever it is, right? And so when you, when you light your streets up <clears throat> evenly and uniformly, you lose that. Now, the criminals can see where you are and, just as, and avoid you. And so I, I would submit, I don't know this to be a fact, but I would submit that 5,000 Kelvin uniform or 4,000 Kelvin uniform streetlights increases the type of crime like rioting. Because I would bet you dollars to donuts that if, if somebody had said, you know what we're going to do while well, these people seem to be getting a little bit rowdy, this... Um, this protest seems to be infiltrated by, you know, you know, some people that are not peaceful and they're, they're stirring up the crowd. They're causing trouble, whatever. It's nighttime. I bet you if they started to warm and dim those lights, I bet you if they did this, I'd love to see this study, although it wouldn't be a, a good study. But if they just started to warm and dim those lights, it would be a cue for people to go home. It would tell them the party is over, buddy. It's time to go home. Now, if you went to play, no, 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 we need to see everybody. Uh, maybe that doesn't work. Maybe the fact that they can see you, like when that Kyle Rittenhouse, he's standing in the middle of the street in the middle of the night, and you can see everything perfectly. You can see a young man there with a rifle in the middle of the street. Like, what the heck is going on? If nobody could see him, that incident would never have happened. I can guarantee you. That one incident with that Rittenhouse kid, where those, those two boys, unfortunately, I think they died, um... You know, I don't care how you feel about that, but I would bet you that if there wasn't electric light illuminating that street, like as if it was daytime, you wouldn't have that kind of chaos. People wouldn't behave that way. It would change the type of crime perhaps, but you wouldn't have this chaos on the streets where everyone can see each other and they're running around and I'm going to run up behind this guy because he's not looking at me right now. All this kind of stuff. If you just started dimming those lights and warming the color, it would cue people that the party's over, Todd. <laughs> National Geographic, yeah, uh, you know, National Geographic a couple of years ago, I think now, had, uh, had a great uh, story where they, they uh, did kind of a transect, I think it was across Los Angeles and, or some city, uh, and they looked at, not lighting for this study, uh, the, the article was, was about foliage, the, the, the trees and the landscaping, and how you could just see as you move down that social economic ladder, uh, beautiful landscaping turned in, into the, the stark, uh, concrete and, and asphalt jungles. And the, the same is, is true about lighting. If, if you go to affluent neighborhoods, you'll see the, those warm lights and you'll see, you know, well shielded because uh, the people living there uh, have been able to, you know, they've been in a position where they can speak out to their, their aldermen, their, their council members, or they've been able to invest in, in lighting, you know, hire an architect or a lighting designer to give them that warm, uh, well-shielded light that they like. And as you move down in, into uh, neighborhoods with lower and lower social economic status, you see that intentionality, that, that mm -hmm. well-designed lighting, that warm lighting, go away 
and what you end up with are, are just the, the the prison yard lights, the, the very bright, like, I don't have time to think about this. I don't have the money to invest in this. I'm just going to put up a light uh, without really any intentionality of thinking about how do I want to use light? How do I want to use darkness uh, mm. in order to enhance the quality of, of life in this neighborhood? And it's just all about how many photons can I shove out and how much is that going to cost me? Okay, great. And and that's the solution that gets implemented. So thinking of, about how we we take the, the lighting. Well, I would say, I would say again, again, I think it's worse than that, Todd. So I don't think it's an accident. I think it's by intention. So I think what happens is, you know, uh, Chicago had their old keyhole to keyhole strategy, right? Every street will be lit from keyhole to keyhole, right? On the on the on in the poor neighborhoods, and you know, you could say, you know, I like I don't I'm not really interested in a racism argument or any kind of blaming groups or anything like this, but. I mean, the, you know, uh, this is what happens in poor communities that the, the you know, um, and they don't feel as franchised. The solution is not to um, treat them like prisoners. The solution is to find, again, it's not a lighting problem, okay? Crime, homelessness, um, these things, they're not, it's not the lights that are the problem, Okay. Like, that's what people have to get through their heads, Todd. It's not the lights that are the problem. Can you believe we've almost spoke for an hour, Todd? I can't believe it. <laughs> I just looked at it right now. I said, oh, my goodness. I thought it was half an hour. I can't believe we've, we've been speaking for almost an hour. Well, Todd, I do, you know, we like to keep it at about 40 minutes, but somehow I, I wasn't watching the clock. Scotty is looking at me here, the producer, he's saying, you know, shut it down. Do you have any final thoughts for the Restoring Darkness listeners and watchers and all that out there? No, other than, you know, I, I love the, the fact that you're bringing these ideas about inte um, intentionality and education uh, to the lighting industry, that we need to do a better job as as advocates, as educators, to get that, that word out there and help them do a better job of what they do. You know, they're, they're in this because they love light and, and lighting. But we need to do a better job of helping them make better choices that are going to provide good lighting solutions for everybody, regardless of where we are on that socioeconomic scale. Lighting solutions that provide the light that, that we need to have uh, the modern life that we all like and that high quality of life and, and yet still minimize light pollution. So, so thank you for what you guys are, are doing. This is, this is awesome. And folks, if you made it to the end here with me, consider going to restoringdarkness.com and and there's a donate button right at the top there. Click the donate button and, 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 and you know, why not become a monthly donor to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation? That's right. We plan to do all these things. And that's creating education, creating awareness through the show in other ways, supporting boots on the ground when people have problems with light pollution ordinances and this kind of stuff. We're going to be there for them. So consider making a donation to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation by going to restoringdarkness.com. Click the donate link at the top. Help us out. We'd love to have you as part of the team. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.